Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's take a look at UFO encounters that left people burnt or hurt. Don't worry, you're, you're going to see in a second what this is all about. But first, as always, let's do some shout-outs. That's right, we've got shout-outs to Aaron, Aaron, Ah Monsters, Laura and David, Alicia, Amber, Andrew, Angie, Ariel, Audrey, Audra, Austin, Autumn, Bob, Seth, Carolyn, Chuck, Cindy, Cole, Damian, Dan, Daniel, Devin, Dill, Dorian. Welcome, Dorian. Drake, Edgar, Elliot, Erica, Aaron, Fabian, Harley, Harvey, Heidi, Isabel. Love that name. Your whole name, that is. I mean, Isabel's cool, but your whole name I love. J. Mark, Jade, Jaime, Jason, Jeff, Jenny, Jennifer, Jerry, Jim, Joe, John, Joshua, Judy, Juliana, Catherine, Kelsey, Kenny, Kimberly, Kira, Kyle, Kyle, Laura, Laura, Laura Ruth. Oh, I got another. Oh, my, so many Lauras. Laura, welcome. Laura, uh, Laura G, Laura P, Laura Rutho, Lauren McCune. Happy Monday. Even though it's not technically Monday, it's Tuesday, but happy Monday nonetheless. Lawrence, Leo, Lindsay, Lionel, M. Caballero, Maggie. Hey, Maggie. Hope you're doing good. Martin, Matt, Megan, Megan, Milo, Nanashi, Nick, Pablo, Paige, Paula, Peaches, the freaking cat, Rachel, Reed, Rosa, Sage, Sarah, Sarah, Sean, freaking Bishop, Shelly, Sonny, Suzanne, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Travis, Trey, Troy, and Veronica. Welcome to y'all. You guys are all amazing. That's my patrons. Head on over to patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac for all your patron needs. Okay, with that, let's get over to paranormal news. With the world caving in around us, it's time for Paranormal News. And the first story in Paranormal News. In search of Bigfoot, a televised expedition may prove the elusive beast is real. The story starts, I grew up in the Sierra Nevada mountains and spent less and spent endless weekends exploring the dense pine tree forest bordering Lake Tahoe, California. The vast area is compromised of 297 lakes and 11 large reservoirs. Don't care. Uh, mysteries, blah, blah, blah. Bigfoot. There have been more than 1,709 sightings throughout California. Throughout the years, my family and friends became accustomed to finding enormous, bizarre footprints, usually in open areas, odd animal odors, and patches of strange, thick fur caught in branches through our extensive hikes. Now, we never truly became comfortable with camping in the woods, and we would often make a hasty retreat to our boat moored on the water after seeing a very tall, imposing figure quietly standing and watching us in the darkness. We had heard the rumors that Bigfoot sightings were prolific in the area, and that added to our paranoia. My interest in the subject continues to this date. The public fascination, now you already guys know all about that. Boom, 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 lots of sightings, 444 published sightings out of 1,709 received from California. There's a concentration in and around El Dorado National Forest, but here we go. Here we get to finally get to the story. 
Now a television series for Travel Channel, Expedition Bigfoot will highlight modern day technology and a team of searchers using advanced data algorithm, groundbreaking science, and tools to analyze five decades of Bigfoot sightings and to pinpoint when and where to encounter the beast. The eight-part series premieres Sunday, December 8th at 10 p.m. on the Travel Channel. Now the expedition includes primologist Dr. Myra, I think Maria, Myra, I don't know. Uh, we'll have to find out. Mayor, Russell Accord, Ronnie LeBlanc, Bryce Johnson. If you guys listen to uh, Bigfoot Collectors Club, Bryce, jo Bryce Johnson is one of the hosts of Bigfoot Collectors Club. It's a great podcast as well. Um, after you get done listening to every episode of Paranormal Almanac, I suggest you listen to theirs. And Ryan RPG Golombeski, I think. Throughout their three-week journey to an undisclosed remote location in a 90,000-acre area of land in central Oregon, they use the latest advanced technologies to narrow their search within the target zone. According to Travel Channel, as the investigation intensifies, evidence that Bigfoot is in the area begins to pile up. Possible nesting sites, footprints, and vocalizations lead the team to a hotspot where inexplicable events occur, and one of the greatest pieces of video evidence in Bigfoot history is recorded. Sounds amazing. I cannot wait to watch it. And speaking of watching it, hold on, I gotta pull this up on my phone so I give you the correct information. And speaking of watching it, I am going to be watching it with the people from Bigfoot Collectors Club, with one of the stars of the show, Bryce Johnson. That's right, Bigfoot Collectors Club, Expedition Bigfoot, viewing party and live podcast featuring special guests Monday, December 9th from 7 to 9 p.m., at the Bigfoot Lodge. The Bigfoot Lodge is located at 3172 Los Feliz Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90039. So, if you guys want to watch Expedition Bigfoot, and I'm sure you do, if you guys want to see me watching Expedition Bigfoot, and I can't imagine you do, well, I will be there. That's Monday, December 9th, 7 to 9 p.m. at the Bigfoot Lodge, this is the one that's in Los Feliz. Or, sorry, this is the one that's in Atwater. It's in Atwater Village in Los Feliz. It's 3172 Los Feliz Boulevard. Once again, that's in Atwater Village, the Bigfoot Lodge. I actually used to work there. I cannot wait to go to this. So if you guys want to see me, that's where I will be. Please come on over, say hi. Scream out, don't fucking shoot Bigfoot. I would love that. Okay, up next in Paranormal News... A new exhibit at the National Archives explores government UFO documents. The U.S. Air Force ended the two-decade-plus-long UFO investigation known as Project Blue Book 50 years ago this week, deciding that, among other things, no sightings or evidence had managed to represent technological developments or principles beyond the range of present-day scientific knowledge. Now, we all know that's crap, but... If you believe that, you may not be the target audience for the National Archives' new exhibit, which will place some of Project Blue Book's documents on display in the Archives' East Rotunda Gallery. That's freaking awesome. So the documents will be on display from December 5th through January 8th at the National Archives Museum, and that's at uh, 701 Constitution Avenue, NW. What's, what the hell's NW? I thought this was in Washington. All right, hold on. I want to look up this address real quick and tell you where exactly it is. Okay, yes. So I just confirmed it. It is 701 Constitution Avenue, NW, Washington, D.C., 20408. Now, I got to say, I really want to go to this. I don't think I'm going to get to it in time. But if you can, December 5th through January 8th, 
at the National Archives Museum, they have Project Blue Book documents. Please go there, take a lot of pictures, send them to me. I'll uh, give you a shout out or, or, you know, credit for the photos or whatever you want. But please just go there and make sure we support these kinds of things because without them, we're not going to get the disclosure we all want. Up next, Navy officers say unknown individuals made them erase evidence of 2004 UFO encounter. That's right. These UFOs, these Tic Tac UFOs that we keep hearing about so much about are in the news again, but for a different reason. Several Navy officers who witnessed the now famous Nimitz UFO encounter in 2004 say, quote, unknown individuals showed up after the event and made them turn over data recordings and videos. This is according to Popular Mechanics. Y'all know about the story, y'all know about the UFOs, but I want to know more about this. Okay, here we go. So it says that uh, one of the veterans, Gary Voorhees, or Voorhees, who looked at the object through binoculars on the ship, recalled that sometime after the officers recorded these strange radio signals, two people showed up on a helicopter and 20 minutes later, Voorhees' chain of command, a higher-up authority figure, told him to turn over the data recordings. His chain of command also told him to delete the recordings on the ships. On the ship. They even told me to erase everything that's in the shop, even the blank tapes. Similarly, Petty Officer Patrick P.J. Hughes, who was an aviation technician, claimed that his commanding officer and two unknown men asked him to turn over the hard drives from the plane. However, Commander David Fravor, one of the pilots who got a close look at the, of the uh, Tic Tac on a fighter jet, told a different story. In various past interviews, Fravor said that the videotapes of the UFO disappeared, not because of any men in suits, but because people had unintentionally recorded over them. Fravor previously told the New York Times that he and Lieutenant Colonel, nope, that he and Lieutenant Commander Jim Slate spotted the object. Oh, we all know that. So the tapes of these UFOs, most of the tapes seem to have been either taken away or erased or destroyed somehow which shouldn't be surprising to anybody. I'm shocked that any of them made their way out, to be honest with you. But was it the men in black? Was it the government? Or was it just them taping over the tapes? I guess we may never know. But I'll keep an eye out for all this information as well. Okay, this next story comes from Australia. Australia acknowledges potential survival of thylacines. That's right, the Tasmanian tigers, those those cryptids that aren't supposed to exist anymore, that were supposedly made extinct by man. Let's see, a Tasmanian tiger was shot and photographed in the wild in 38, and they were documented up into the 60s. But in 1986, the Tasmanian tiger was declared extinct by the government of Tasmania after no confirmed sightings for 50 years until now. In a press release from the Tasmanian Department of Primary Industries, Parks, Water, and Environment, Eight sightings of the thylacine have been reported since 2016, and two in 2019 alone. I said this a long time ago. It's on the podcast. I'm sure it's on record somewhere besides the podcast. I truly believe that the thylacines are still out there. I hope, but I really truly believe that they're still out there. They aren't extinct. We're going to find them again. And when we do, we better protect those things. Whoa. We better protect these things. We nearly made them extinct once. Let's try and actually protect them so they don't go extinct again. I thought that one was kind of cool. I really, really hope that that turns out to be true and the thylacines are still out there. Up next in paranormal news, 
When we finally find aliens, they might smell terrible. I gotta be honest with you, I just like the headline on this one. It's a very simple story. I'm just gonna give you the, like, the bullet points version. Because of the gases that we breathe, oxygen, might not be the same gases that aliens breathe, they may stink. They may stink of stuff called phosphine. So, if we see aliens, they might stink, but uh, let's not uh, stink shame some aliens. If you have the chance to actually meet an alien, don't fuck it up by saying, oh man, you know you stink? Don't, don't do that. Because we probably stink to them. In fact, I guarantee it. Okay, finally in paranormal news, Bermuda Triangle mystery solved? How 200-foot giant squid washed up on Florida beach. The discovery of a 200-foot-long carcass on the beach of St. Augustine, Florida, led scientists at Yale University to claim one of Bermuda Triangle's most famous cases had been solved. And that case is the Cyclops. On March 14, 1918, Cyclops, a 542-foot-long Navy collier, left Barbados bound for Norfolk, Virginia. On board was a crew of 309 men. Strangely, although the Cyclops was among the first ships ever radio-equipped, it never issued so much as the preliminary SOS. The Navy suspected the boat was attacked by an enemy submarine, but many years later, another fantastic theory emerged to explain the loss of the Cyclops and other missing vessels. A giant squid. They say while at first glance it sounds far-fetched, the existence of the giant squids, called the giant octopus or giant squid, is no myth. Of course it isn't. In 1896, a carcass was found on the beach in St. Augustine by two boys, and they reported it to Yale it was 200 feet long, and was identified as a giant octopus, so kind of misidentified. Now, they say that in 1995, they took a sample of it, and they think that was probably just the collagenous matrix of whale blubber. Very easy. But they are known to have giant squids there. They really are. So if there was a giant squid, and if it attacked a boat, it would have been huge, but not unheard of. Bermuda researcher Rob Simone believes the discovery proves something similar is hiding in Bermuda's waters to this day. Now, he said in 2007, the legend of the giant squid is not a legend. They exist. Some of them over 150 feet long, if you can imagine this. We don't know what lies beneath the uh, depths of the ocean. This very well could be a giant creature that is particular to this part of the ocean. Maybe its food sources are contained there. We don't know, but it could explain some of the ships that mysteriously were lost. Alrighty, so again, great headline. When you get right down to it, they don't know anything more about it than they did before. But this guy genuinely believes that a giant squid is responsible for some, if not all, of the Bermuda Triangle sinkings, if you will, of ships. They took down all these ships because they're huge. We'll have to wait and see if there's any evidence that comes out. But as of right now, in my opinion, there is very little evidence to say that a giant squid is taking out ships left and right in the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. We'll be right back in just a second with even more Paranormal Almanac. Okay, so like I said... Oh, first of all, hello, we're back. Stitch and I are back. So like I said at the beginning of this episode, you'll catch on quick enough, but this episode is all about people and some things that were burnt or hurt because of UFO encounters. Hey, Kurt, how do we know if things are hurt by UFOs? Look, I don't have time for this imaginary argument on the show. You'll get what I mean in a second. So the first one, 
took place on August 26, 1975 in Fargo, North Dakota, when Sandy Larson, her 15-year-old daughter Jackie, and Jackie's boyfriend, Terry O'Leary, awoke early so Sandy could drive 200 miles to Bismarck to take a real estate test. And I mean really early. They were already on the road, 45 miles from home, by 4 a.m. And that's when something happened. The three of them saw between 8 to 10 bright glowing orbs with smoke behind them descending from the southern sky up ahead, heading east and starting to approach them. They heard a loud sound resembling the, the rumbling of thunder, if you will, in the distance. And it seriously kept getting louder and louder as the orbs grew brighter and brighter as they got closer and closer. And these are proper orbs, not the like bullshit haunted house dust orbs, okay? So one of these glowing orbs was, quote, noticeably larger than the others. And depending where you get your information, it's been said that, that uh, Jackie and her boyfriend said that the other orbs actually emerged out of the large one. But I couldn't find that on all accounts. So I don't know if that part is true. But anyhow, so the orbs descended quickly until they were just above the tree lines about 20 yards away. And these things were low and they were close. Then as quick as they descended, half of them shot up and away. Now, all three of the people in the car felt as if they were frozen for a second. And I don't mean cold frozen. I mean like stuck in place frozen. And when they unpaused, if you will, they said the orbs were flying away, but that something else was odd. Jackie, who had been sitting in the middle of the front seat between Larry and her mother, was now sitting in the middle of the back seat, and she had no idea how she got there. Now, I will say, other sources say that the mom was now in the back seat and Jackie was now driving. But I don't know which is accurate, so you're going to get both, okay? Anyhow, so they, when they looked down at their watches and at the car clock, when they pulled into the nearest gas station, they saw it was now one hour later. Let's fast forward to December when psychologist R. Leo Sprinkle, that's right, Dr. Sprinkle, a professor and therapist from the University of Wyoming, a professor and therapist from the University of Wyoming heard about the odd case and hypnotized Sandra and Jackie separately, obviously with their permission. They went to him for hypnoregression therapy. Now, Terry admitted what he had seen definitely happened. They all saw it. It all happened, but said he didn't want anything to do with it, any more to do with it, and he declined being hypnotized. So Dr. Sprinkle hypnotizes Sandra and Jackie separately. Under hypnosis, Jackie remembered being outside the car, but she was frozen or paralyzed. Now, Sandra said she remembered floating up into the UFO with Terry, where a six-foot-tall robot with glaring eyes put her on a table, rubbed a clear liquid over her, and inserted an instrument up her nose. Now, she called it a metal tool to gather a sample from her by scraping the inside of her nostril, like, you know, DNA test now. The robot then performed other medical procedures on both her and Terry. Now, she said during the medical procedure, she felt dizzy and nauseous and felt as if her, uh, quote, her head would explode. Sandra described the beings performing the procedures to her as appearing, quote, like mummies, claiming that the figures were covered in a strange wrapping while their bulging eyes appeared, while their bulging eyes peered out at her. Also, their arms were, quote, like segmented metal rods found in a Meccano set. That reminds me, I want to look up what the hell a Meccano set is, because I've never heard of that. 
Oh, an erector set. So it looks like a, it looks like an erector set. I get what she's saying. It had segmented arms like a like a toy robot, if you will, like an erector set or a mechano set. Now she said when everything was done, the robot then wiped their memories and returned them to the car. She had marks on her hands that were burn-like, but that was the extent of her injuries. Now both Jackie and Sandra described everything the same. Jackie said she didn't get sucked up into the UFO, but she described the UFO exactly as Sandra did, under hypnosis. Alright, so a whole lot of info packed into one abduction. And since they came forward, there's been a ton of skepticism, but no explanations of what actually happened to them. This is what we know. They didn't do drugs. They weren't prone to delusions and never talked about aliens before this. Many experts who have studied this case, so this is textbook trauma and PTSD, including Terry not wanting to be hypnotized. They said that is definite PTSD. The way he was acting after it was he remembered more than he was saying or he knew there was more than he was saying. Even though there are a lot of discrepancies amongst various sites, who sat where and even who Terry was dating. Some of them say the mom, but most of them say the daughter. What I can say is the testimony from them has never changed in any instance that I can find. Their stories have never changed over the years. So this one, you get what I mean by like burns? You know, only one of them were burned and it was just her hands. But that's just the first one. A little trauma, a couple of burns. So let's get right into the next one, okay? Now this next one took place on December 29th, 1980 at 9 p.m. When another trio had their own experience. Now this time it was Betty Cash, Vicki Landrum, and Vicky's six or seven-year-old grandson Colby. Again, depending where you get your information, there's slight variations. Now they were returning home after dinner on State Road 1485 near Dayton, Texas. This is just on the outskirts of Houston. It was then, according to Vicky, it was then, according to Vicky, that they noticed bright light in the sky that seemed to be blowing flames. She said, you could see it through the trees. It started to get real close, and that's when I knew it wasn't a plane. You know how else you could know it wasn't a plane? Planes don't blow flames. All right, so Betty Cash said, we didn't know what it was, but we knew there was something that was lighting up the sky. We had begun to feel heat, and all of a sudden, Vicky screamed for me to stop. When I stopped, she went forward, and her handprint was embedded on the dash of the car. And I thought, well, I've got to see what this is. So I got out, walked towards the front of the automobile, and I stood up, and I stood there looking up, trying to figure out what this object was. It was a diamond-shaped object about the size of a water tower, hovering at treetop level. Then at the bottom, flames were shooting out. She said the heat was tremendous. It felt just like I was burning from the inside out. So it was so hot, they moved back to the car really quick, and she said, When I reached for the door handle, the door handle was so hot I couldn't even begin to hold on to it. I was more than scared. The only thing I was thinking was, are we going to get out of here alive? Now, Vicki Landrum said the vinyl dashboard was softened so much by the heat that her hand left an impression in it. And she said that just moments later, a large squadron of helicopters descended on the UFO. She said there were large helicopters that had the double rotaries on them. I counted 22 and I knew they had to be and I knew they had to belong to the army. They soon were surrounding the UFO. Now both um both Betty and Vicky counted and 
variously reported they were either 23 or 26 helicopters. Now, many of them were tandem rotor helicopters, which people say are consistent with the CH-4, no, the CH-47 Chinook helicopter, which is used by militaries worldwide, but were not really in use at that time. Although, I looked into these helicopters, they started service in 1961 and kept going into 2012. So they were definitely in service at this time. Whether the local military base had any on the base, I don't know. Some people say yes, a lot of people say no. But anyhow, so these helicopters kept after that diamond-shaped UFO until they were all out of sight. Seems crazy, right? Well, it gets worse. In fact, it gets a lot worse. Later that night, around 1 a.m., Colby, once again the six or seven-year-old grandson, woke up crying. They said he was begging me for water. He had a fever and he had vomited all over the bed. Also, the next morning, Vicky and Colby were still nauseous and they both had what appeared to be a severe case of sunburn. Betty was the worst, though. Her temperature was, quote, dangerously high and large red welts had appeared on her face and her hands. In fact, all three of them appeared to have suffered, quote, acute radiation poisoning with symptoms including nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, general weakness, and also severe burns on their arms and faces. In fact, wherever the skin had been uncovered and exposed to the UFO. Now, Betty Cash was finally convinced to go to a hospital just four days after the incident, and she was actually hospitalized for two weeks. She had follow-up hospitalizations as well. A lot of her hair fell out, as well as some of her fingernails. Now again, depending on where you get your info, a number of sites say she lost more than 50% of her hair and patches of skin on her face. I can't prove that part is real, but I can say that she was definitely treated by Dr. Brian McLennan. He said, There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that Betty was exposed to high doses of radiation. As to what the source was, I can't exactly say. He also said it was comparable to being, quote, three to five miles from the epicenter of Hiroshima. All right, after her release from the hospital, Betty asked for help from UFO investigator John Schusler of MUFON, who is a former NASA project manager. He said, we had done several interviews with Betty and Vicky, and then we went out to the locations where this happened. They were very clear on where it happened and how it happened. They told us exactly where along the road they stopped because there were markers that identified the spot. They were, able to, they were able to point out exactly where they saw the object coming down from the sky, over the road, and hovering there. They were also able to point out a spot on the road that indicated that it had been heated to an extreme level of heating. Which I gotta say is a very odd way of saying there was a spot on the road from extreme levels of heat. A spot on the road that indicated it had been heated to an extreme level of heating. It was burnt, and it was very clear to the naked eye. Several weeks after we went on to the spot, ever, several weeks after we went to the spot and saw this burned area, someone dug up the road and hauled it away and replaced it with new asphalt. Some of the witnesses that watched this happen said the people brought in unmarked trucks, dug up the road, put the material on the trucks, covered it with a tarp, and then drove away. When John Schuler was asked what happened, he said, one is that it was an experimental craft of some kind, probably from our government. The other is that it was an unidentified flying object, possibly extraterrestrial. Now, John Schusler, 
then questioned everyone he could in a five-mile radius. At least ten other people had seen the object, and seven or eight other people had seen the helicopters. Their descriptions were all very similar to what Betty and Vicky described. And one eyewitness was really important for an obvious reason. It was police officer L.L. L. Walker, and he said, My wife Marie and I were returning from her mother's and dad. As we were coming out, some of the tree lines coming out of... Oh, as we were coming out of some... Coming out of some tree lines, I saw a helicopter. It was shining a spotlight at the ground. Then I heard the noise of other helicopters behind it, and I stopped the car. Because I didn't know what was going on. The helicopters were military, and they were all flying fairly low to the ground, and all of them had search beams on. Now, I thought maybe there was an airplane down, but they didn't hesitate. They kept going in the same direction, which would probably intersect the area where Vicky said her encounter was. Alrighty, so now I gotta go to the grain of salt time. A bunch of sites say that Betty and Vicky went to their senators and the Air Force agreed to meet them at nearby Bergstrom Air Force Base. Here's why I have a problem with that. As they entered the room, Vicky noticed a large map and on that exact spot where they saw the UFO, there was a mark on the map. It's, you know, I don't believe that it's true. It's just two X-Files to be true. So I doubt that part happened. Why would they agree to meet them? Why would they agree to meet them in that room with that map on the wall? It just makes zero sense. But the maybe bullshit story continues that they were questioned by the Air Force for more than two hours. The interview was recorded by a military stenographer. And in the end, the two men denied that any military or government operation had been conducted at that time at that place. The women were told they were entitled to file a claim and that the Air Force would review the case and surprise four weeks later... Betty and Vicky's claims for medical damages were denied. I can't find proof that any of that happened. Now, Vicky Landrum has said throughout the years, quote, I don't believe in little green men. And it had to be an object. It could have been a spacecraft that the government was carrying, but our government was carrying it. And Betty Cash said that all she wanted was information that could help her medically. She said, if it's a top secret object that's protecting the United States, then I would say I could forgive them for that. But at least they owe us to tell us exactly why we were burned and what type of radiation that we were exposed to and how much. Sadly, Betty died 18 years later at the age of 69, and she went through every form of cancer. I won't go into the details, but she had a very sad, she had a very sad, very cancer-filled life. Now, interestingly enough, when I was doing research on this case, I found a bunch of reader comments about this story on a website, and I felt they deserved to be shared, but again, I can't prove any of these are real, so, as always, grain of salt time. But here are some readers' comments, okay? This happened in Huffman, not Dayton, about a mile from my house. When I was a kid, our bus route went right over the mark in the road, which was faded by the 90s, but still visible. They'd repave the patch of asphalt several times and attempt to cover it, which eventually it did. The funny thing is, after they repaved it a few days later, it's like the stain of the markings would start to permeate through the asphalt. I've lived in this town for 30 years, and I've had two UFO sightings, one which was very similar to the Cash Landrum sighting. The other was a ball of light, slightly larger than a basketball. Many people in town have seen both types of UFOs, and my neighbor from across the street filmed one that you can see on YouTube if you search Huffman UFO. Well, let's search Huffman UFO on YouTube right now. Hmm, I don't know which one it is. I'm assuming it's UFO in Huffman, Texas. Eh, I don't need, you guys don't need to hear that. 
you guys can actually go to YouTube and check out Huffman UFO and watch them. There's quite a few. There's Huffman UFO, UFO in Huffman, Texas, UFO Huffman, Texas, question mark, UFO in Huffman, Texas, part two. I'm assuming it's these. The next reader's comment says, I never looked into this case heavily, but according to leading UFO authority, Dr. Stephen Greer, information from a... USAF intelligence officer said that this event was the result of a captured alien technology vehicle the military was flying, which was powered by a man-made nuclear power plant because we didn't know how the alien power source worked. The craft had a leak or core breach, which gave the victims radiation sickness. Yeah, I can totally see that happening. They had radiation sickness. This doesn't seem too far-fetched to me, I'll put it that way. The next one says, the next reader comment says, I remembered when this happened. That night, my mom came home and was carrying on about some very strange bright lights over the lake that she had watched move very quickly. Not like any aircraft she had ever seen. My mother was not one to imagine weird stuff or believe in extraterrestrials at all. In fact, she was so shaken that it had me a little scared. We went out searching for these aircraft but never saw anything further. It wasn't until some time later that we learned of the other incident and figured out that it was the same night. That's very cool. That's very, very cool. But before I move on, that was the last of the uh, that was the last of the reader comments. But before I move on, there are skeptics who are saying the following: the sunburn is interesting, but also suspicious. The only photographic evidence was shown on April 1981 episode of That's Incredible, which is an American TV show, and they had them all on to tell their UFO story. Gary Posner, a skeptical medical doctor, described what he saw in an email to author Robert Schaefer. Betty's arms show discreet, round, sunburn-type rashes that immediately caused me to suspect that she had created them by covering her arms with a garment containing circular cutouts and then exposing herself to sunlight or a sun lamp. There was no mention of these circular sunburns in the hospital doctor's notes that Schusler included in his book, nor any mention of her sunburn at all except the swelling on her face. We also know that Schusler carefully cherry-picked what to include in the book and what not to, as he began his investigation and spoke with other members of the UFO enthusiast communities, he received an offer from Dr. Peter Rank, a radiologist and a member of a group called the Fund for, Uf the Fund for UFO Research, to examine Cash's medical records and give his medical opinion. He did so, and in a letter to Schusler, he concluded, I think it's important to assure Betty that on the basis of the medical information you have provided me, there are no signs of serious injury to date. You may also reassure Vicky that her cataract was probably a pre-existing condition and not necessarily related to the incident. So apparently Schusler also included most of the letter written by Dr. Rank in his book, but not that uh, paragraph that I just read. It's very interesting. I don't know what to think. I do. I've, I've seen the photos. You can check out the photos if you want of the uh, the cash um, of the cash Landrum UFO encounter. I am not an expert on radiation or radiation burns at all. Seems to me that they aren't faking it. They weren't faking it. Like I said, Betty had many run-ins. Betty had a lot of run-ins with cancer throughout her life and sadly died at the age of 69. These burns appear to me anyway, a layman, not a medical professional. These burns appear to be real as far as I can tell. This appeared to happen, as far as I can tell. From everything I can find, this was real, and this really happened. Okay, up next is another weird one, if you will, and this one involves a sheriff. 
I thought I talked about this one before. I'll be honest. I looked it up. I was like, man, I could have sworn I talked about this one on a past episode, but I couldn't find it. So if I have, well, here it is again. Hopefully I haven't. September 11th, 1979, Marshall County Sheriff, uh, Marshall County Sheriff's Deputy Val Johnson was on night patrol along a rural section of State Highway 220 near Warren, Minnesota, when, I mean, I guess the best way to say it is, is when he drove into a ball of white light. All right, so he's driving, it's nighttime, he's on night patrol, he's in his cop car, and he sees this, quote, bright, brilliant light, which hovered three to four feet from the ground in front of him. And now he's driving towards it, kind of like playing UFO chicken with it, basically. And, well, the light won, because Johnson woke up in a ditch a half hour later with burns around his eyes and superficial damage to the windshield and one headlight of his 1977 Ford LTD patrol car. Now, both radio antennas, antennae, I don't know what the plural to antenna are. Antenna, antennas? Antennae, sure. Both radio antennae were bent back sharply. So he had a little bit of damage to his car, but nothing significant. And the typical lost time occurred because the watch on his wrist, as well as the clock in the car, were 14 minutes slow. Now he said in a taped interview, quote, I noticed a very bright, brilliant light, eight to 12 inches in diameter, three to four feet off the ground, but the edges were really defined. Police did investigate this incident when it happened to determine they didn't know what the hell hit the car, but they didn't find any fur or debris in the windshield or on the grill of the car. They said they just don't know what happened that night. In fact, for almost a year after the UFO crash, Johnson was hit up by just about everybody for an interview. He said his wife was, quote, run ragged by the constant calls and interview requests. He appeared on Good Morning America, dozens of newspapers around the world. Then he says, quote, and then other stories came along and pushed me off the front page. Thank goodness. So this guy, he's a police officer. He wasn't drunk. He hit something. It wasn't like he just fell asleep at the wheel and went off the road. No, he specifically hit something. He hit something very specifically. So I trust him at his word. There's evidence that something hit his car that wasn't an animal, that wasn't something odd. And he never tried to seek fame from this or money from this, apparently. He was happy when another story came along that finally pushed him off the front page. And this was a huge story in a very small town. In fact, the car still exists exactly as it did on that very night with the smashed headlight and the windshield. It's in the Marshall County Museum with a plaque that says UFO car which I got to say is a bit misleading because the car is not a UFO itself. It's, you know, a car that maybe hit a UFO. Well, definitely hit a UFO. But it also gets brought out every year for the Marshall County Fair. So if you want to see it in action, either go to that museum or go to the Marshall County Fair. So getting back to Val Johnson just a little bit, again, I think it's very important to note that he never sought things out for this. He never sought out money. He never sought out fame. He just wanted to be left alone. He definitely went on to other things, and he said, quote, People don't call about that anymore. I looked up in the sky and said, Well, shucks, what happened? And then I shuffled on with my life. He moved on, moved towns, but said for years before he moved, people would show up on his front porch to talk to him about his experience. 
He said we'd sit in the backyard with lemonade and talk. They'd tell me what they thought happened to me, and I'd nod at the appropriate times, and eventually they'd just go away. He said I saw a ball of light. I drove towards it, and suddenly it was in the car with me. It's unexplainable, and will remain so. I'm happy with my mental stability. If anything, it's a story to tell at the bar, and that's it. I think that one's a very, very important uh, UFO story. Like I said, for the just for the fact that it's a reputable guy who didn't want to become famous. So I think, what is that, uh, two for two with burned eyes? All right. Aren't UFOs fun? You get to see a UFO and they'll burn your face off. Um, up next is a very quick one, and I mean very quick one, from 1957. This one happened in Oro Grande, New Mexico, when an egg-shaped UFO came very close to a witness. Now, this witness is said to have contracted a sunburn. Yep, that's it. That's the whole story. Like I said, very quick story with the smallest amount of information, the smallest amount of details. Boom, done, moving on, okay. Up next, on the evening of November 6th, 1957, 25 miles outside Terre Haute, Indiana, Renee Gilman, who is a young iron worker, he lived with his family on a farm. They're eating dinner when a neighbor's kid came in the house and uh, urged Renee's kids to go outside to quote, hurry out and see the funny star in the sky. Okay, so the kids go outside and immediately start yelling for their parents to come out. So Renee and his wife, they walk out to see, oh, look, honey, the neighbors are standing right there, right in front of their house, and they're staring up. Our kids are standing right there, and they're staring up. What are they staring up at, you might be asking? Well, I'll tell you right now. It was a circular UFO, which, quote, hung motionless in the sky and an estimated 200 to 300 feet overhead. So very close to the ground. They said it was not less than 30 or more than 40 feet in diameter. So that's a dumb way to say it was probably 35 feet in diameter. They said it was perfectly silent, even though it was that close to them. When all of a sudden, brilliant beams of blue light, brilliant, ooh, brilliant beams of bright blue light began projecting downward from the center of the object, which scared off the neighbors. They were like, fuck this, I'm going home. Renee's wife took the kids and went inside as well, with Renee supposedly saying, take the kids and go on inside. I want to see this thing. Now, I can't really blame them for that. If I walked outside my tiny little farmhouse, I don't know if it's a tiny farmhouse, if I walked outside my normal-sized farmhouse with my wife and kids, and we were looking up and seeing a UFO only 200 to 300 feet directly above, and all of a sudden, brilliant beams of bright blue light began projecting down from the center of the UFO, I probably would want to stay outside and see it as well. I would probably get a little bit farther away from it, but anyhow. So this next part isn't very clear, but apparently... He stood there under the UFO for a total of about 10 minutes directly in the beams of light, which, in case you don't know, is a dumb thing to do. Now, he said each light lasted about half a second each. They would go on and off. Another light would pop on. That one would turn off, blah, blah, blah. Then he said the thing made a sizzling sound like a high-speed electric motor, and away it went. So... Based on every other story I've told on this episode, everything was fine with Renee, right? Well, immediately after, right away, he's fine. Goes inside, 
tells his story to his family, feels fine. Then two days later on Friday, he had eye inflammation and his face was beginning to swell and to itch. By Saturday, the top of his head and his face were red and burning, so he goes and sees a doctor. He saw Dr. Joseph Dukes, who said that the burns Renee suffered were similar to the burns caused by overexposure to the rays from an electric welding torch. Now, Ray said that he had not been near a welding torch for three weeks, nor for that matter, anything else that could have caused the burns. Oh, yeah, except for that blinking light on the UFO that he stood under like an idiot. You know, that whole 10 minutes standing underneath a UFO beaming bright blue lights directly onto you? Dumb. So Dr. Duke sends him to a hospital in Sullivan, Indiana at Mary Sherman Hospital for more, better treatment, he said. He was treated there and was supposedly interrogated by the Air Force there, who told him not to mention the UFO to anyone again. And then he was released a few days later, where it said he fully recovered from the UFO beams. But... One source says the following. In the late 60s, my sister married a man who had been a lab technician at Mary Sherman's Hospital in Sullivan, Indiana. He told investigators that Mr. Gillum was told to return to the hospital every year for blood tests. Radiation sickness blood tests. So what did we learn there, kids? We learned not to stand directly under a UFO shooting bright blue beams of light. Okay, up next we have a creepy Scoutmaster story. Not that kind of creepy, thankfully. It happened on Tuesday, August 19th, 1952, when Scoutmaster D.S. Sonny Desvergers, 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 that sounds right. I'm just going to say it that way. Sonny Desvergers had an encounter with a UFO that the story goes had emerged burnt and incoherent from a dense palmetto grove in the southern Florida Everglades. What? Well, let's get to it. So, it's Palm Beach County, Florida. Deputy Sheriff Mott N. Parton was contacted by a farmer who lived about 12 miles southwest of West Palm Beach on Military Trail. The farmer said that he had Sonny and three scouts, Bobby Ruffing, 12, David Rowan, 11, and Charles Chuck Stevens, 10, in his living room. They were all scared, and he needed the sheriff to come over. The sheriff got there and asked Sonny what happened. The boy said that Sonny had gone into the scrub pine in Palmetto just off military trail to investigate some odd lights. Moments later, the boy saw red flare-like lights in the area where Sonny had gone. So they got scared and left Sonny and took off for the farmhouse. Hold on a second. Isn't one of the Boy Scouts' motto, Always Be Prepared? I'm sure there's another motto or a patch or something that says don't leave your scoutmaster behind when red flares spark off in his face. But I wasn't a Boy Scout, so what do I know? So the kids take off. They go to the farmhouse. Farmhouse calls the sheriff. So the sheriff takes Sonny and the boys to the spot where it happened. When they got out of the car, a man waving a machete emerged from the palmettos. The man was shouting repeatedly, I'm coming. Here I am. What happened to the man? Don't know. Even the police report doesn't say. What the fuck? I don't know. I'm beginning to think this was so poorly written in every account that the man was actually Sonny. The only thing I can think of is Sonny went off into that scrub pine in the palmetto. The kids saw the bright lights, freaked out, 
fucked off without Sonny to the farmhouse. The farmhouse called the sheriff because there's just three kids sitting there. Those three kids and the sheriff go into the woods and boom, out pops Sonny with the machete screaming, I'm coming, here I am. Do I know if that's the thing that happened? Nope, because again, every instance I could find about this was so poorly written. Anyhow, so Sonny and the sheriff go back to the spot where it happened and they find Sonny's flashlight. It's still on in the spot where he said the UFO was. They all go back to the police station, the sheriff station, where they said that Sonny's forearm hair was singed and some skin was burnt off. Plus, there were three holes burnt into his scout hat. At the station, Sonny claimed he saw a UFO up close that discharged a fireball, which left him singed and barely able to see. Now, Project Blue Book actually has a case about this instance, and it has these notes. After four minutes of hacking through the bush, Sonny entered a clearing in the grove. The first thing he described was an acute, nauseating smell, and then the feeling of somebody or something watching him. He then experienced a sensation of oven-like heat coming from above. Looking up, Sonny said he could not see any stars as he was standing beneath a hovering object. He says the object was circular, dull black with no seams, about 30 feet in diameter, with a height of 10 feet, a convex dome atop it, with the bottom edge lit with phosphorescent glow. As Sonny slowly moved backwards, he recalled he heard a noise like metal against metal, quite, uh, quote, like a hatch opening, after which a red, flare-like light came from the side of the object and slowly moved towards him. As he placed his hands over his face, fist closed, hand over each eye, the red ball of light grew into a red mist that engulfed him. I'm going to pause right here. Okay, if you're not driving, I want you all to do this. Make fists with your hands. Place each fist over your eye. Now, unless you're trying to make like, uh, you know when you're trying to mime, you're looking through binoculars and your fists are open? That's the only way he could see that this red light, this ball of light, grew into a red mist that engulfed him. But I don't think he was making a mime binoculars. I think he had his fists closed, hand over each eye. So tell me this, Sonny, how do you know it became a red mist that slowly engulfed him? But anyhow, he says it was then that he lost consciousness. When he awoke, Sonny was leaning against a tree, but he could not see properly because his eyes burned. Scrambling back through the palmettos, his eyesight slowly returning to normal, he burst, incoherent, out on the highway, where he was met by the boys. Ah, okay, so there we have it. The crazy man with the machete screaming, I'm coming, here I am, was Sonny. Okay, let's see. Ba -ba -ba. Came out, there's the boys. So, um, Rupelt of Project Blue Book got the case, went down there immediately after it happened, and he took samples of the singed grass. That's right, even the grass in that area was singed as well. Now, samples were taken to Battelle Memorial Institute, which was under contract with the United States Air Force to provide a scientific support to Project Blue Book. What were those results? Though the soil remained consistent, the root structure of the plants in question were charred black, and the lower leaves had deteriorated as if by heat. The only way the lab could come close to duplicating the effect was to place live clumps of grass in a pan of sandy soil and heat it to about 300 degrees Fahrenheit. This is very important. 
It wasn't the tops of the grass burnt and the roots were fine. It was the exact opposite, as if the heat came out from the ground. Like I said, the roots part is odd, and it's the only one I could find in Project Blue Book. It's very important because it is a very odd thing to happen. Once again, it's not the tops of the plants that were burnt. They were burnt from the ground up, inside the ground up. Which is one of the main reasons I think that this story is true. I don't think that Sonny went off to be alone and shot a flare into the sky or a flare into the ground and was blinded by his own flare. I think something really weird definitely happened to Sonny. It's, it was enough that the boys saw it from a distance, were scared enough that they took off without him. And you got to remember, these are kids in the Florida swamp, woods, whatever you want to call it. And they were freaked out enough to run to the nearest farmhouse and leave their scoutmaster behind. Very bizarre. Okay, now there's one final UFO incident like this. That's the Falcon Lake UFO case. Now, I've talked a little bit about Falcon Lake in Paranormal News, but I don't think I've ever talked about it on Paranormal Almanac. Well, that one will be a patron exclusive coming up very soon, patrons. It's definitely the case that made me go down this rabbit hole. It's an incredible case, but it may not end the way you think. That's all I'm going to say about that. So, patrons, that one will be up as soon as I can, hopefully very soon, hopefully by this weekend. I'm not making any promises, but that's my plan. I'm hoping to have it out this weekend so I can get you guys two patron episodes this month alone. But anyhow, finally, for this episode, for everybody, I wanted to take a look at how MUFON is cataloging these kinds of cases. Because they are, and I think it's very important that they're finally being very specific about these types of cases where injury happens from a UFO. So the injury is defined by the MUFON Field Investigators Manual are placed in one of four categories. Category 1, those injuries of a temporary nature dealing with paralysis, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, headache, tingling sensations, electrical shocks, feeling of heat, temporary blindness, mild burns, perception of odors, and perception of sounds. Category 2 are more chronic effects, like skin lesions. Also, effects of radiation exposure may result in the development of cancers, anemia, or the like. Category 3, those involving female abductees and the missing fetus syndrome and those involving implants. Category 4, those involving psychological or paranormal evidence as noted by the witness. So those are very, very interesting categories from one through four of what can happen in a UFO encounter. I don't want any of those four categories. They also go on to say that this should be noted. The MUFON medical consultant would like to see the results of the following tests, where it has been determined that the witness was exposed to some type of radiation. It may be necessary to repeat a number of the tests at specific intervals. Why did I think that was very important? Because I had two cases on this episode alone where the government or the hospitals asked people to come back at specific intervals so they could check their blood for radiation poisoning. It is exactly like two of the cases I talked about on this episode. But they go on to say the check for weight, for vital signs, for blood forming functions, kidney functions, liver functions, multiple systems and organs, skin lesions, hair loss, Fingernail shedding, which is a gross statement. Chest x-rays, OBGYN, number of full-term deliveries, number of preterm deliveries, 
it goes on and on in depth. And again, as creepy as this may sound, because I want to see a UFO. I'm sure a lot of you guys out there want to see a UFO, but I don't want to see a UFO and have to go through any of this crap. But as creepy as it sounds, this is very important information for MUFON to be cataloging so we have more information on what to do or what could happen during a UFO encounter. Like I said, I seriously hope I never have to fill out any part of this form. Hopefully none of you guys will have to as well. So with that creepy ending to this episode, I guess that's as good a place as any to, um, to stop. So what do you guys think? Are these real encounters with UFOs or are these people trying to make a name for themselves or just weird pathological people? Are they real injuries? Are they real injuries caused by UFOs? We know they're real injuries, but are they real injuries caused by UFOs? What the hell happened to Machete Guy? Was the Machete Guy sunny? I God, I hope so, because if there's just a random Machete Guy in the Florida Everglades swamps, whatever the hell they call them, and nobody seemed to care, that makes Florida an even scarier place to go to than it already is. So all these questions and more will not be answered on the next episode of Paranormal Almanac. Before I go, I wanted to play for you guys a spooky Paranormal Almanac theme or end credits theme. Hope you guys like it. Tell me what you think. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvik, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. <laughs>